We are back in the Gospel of Luke this morning. And the book of Luke in our Bibles is oftentimes called the Gospel of Luke because the book of Luke contains the the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, God the Son. And because it also reveals through God's own words, through his Son, the way of salvation, the way in which we might be saved from our sin and and made right with God. Therefore, the book of Luke contains good news and is good news to us, which is why we don't just call the book of Luke the book of Luke. That's not wrong, but we also call it the gospel of Luke. We're picking up this morning with Jesus and his disciples in a garden called Gethsemane on a mountain called the Mount of Olives. And Jesus has just been praying. In fact, in verse 44, we read that he's been in agony as he prays. There's been a battle going on as Jesus submits his human will to the will of the Father. We saw two weeks ago that battle, and that's a battle we know as well, don't we? What it looks like to to battle with submitting our own will to the will of the Father. I think it's important to point out that where Adam, in a different garden, chose not to submit out of faithlessness, the second Adam, here in another garden, chooses to fully submit to the Father and is completely faithful. In fact, we're going to read over the next several weeks as we make our way to the end of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see just how costly that faithfulness was. Specifically this morning, we're going to see Jesus' faithfulness even amid the faithlessness of pretty much everyone else. Faithfulness amid faithlessness. And there are some sermons that are preached where a text of scripture is read and explained and then, and then clear points of application are made. Do this, do this, do this, or live this way, or live this way, or live this way. And this morning's text is, gonna, is a little bit different. This morning is not so much about do this, do this, do this, but it's about remember this, remember this, remember this. And so this morning's text is going to, I hope, help you delight in who God is through Jesus Christ and celebrate the work of Jesus Christ and to celebrate Jesus' faithfulness even amid our own faithlessness. So to do that, what I want to do is point out three examples of faithlessness, and we will probably find ourselves in maybe one or two, or maybe you find yourself in all three examples of faithlessness. And then we're going to turn, and we're going to look at the faithfulness of Jesus from kind of three dimensions. So we're going to to kind of turn the the diamond a bit and see a different facet of Jesus' faithfulness in our text this morning. So... With that, let's pick up, Uh, I want to read, begin reading in verse 44, just so we can have a running start as we make it into our text this morning. Verse 44, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, he's in agony. Verse 44, the word of the Lord says, and being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. 
<clears throat> and when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, should we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear, healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. If you're taking notes this morning, we can begin with this clear example of faithless betrayal. Faithless betrayal. Jesus has been praying in the garden. He's told his disciples to be prepared in verse 46. And as he is speaking to them, Judas appears with a crowd. And this is no ordinary crowd. Verse 52 tells us that this crowd is made up of the chief priests, the officers of the temple, the elders, and according to John's account of the same thing, soldiers. Luke, remember, a physician, always one for detail, gives us more information about Judas here. In fact, he tells us in verse 47 that Judas was one of the 12. Now, the readers of Luke, even us as we've made our way through Luke already, we, we've seen Judas on the scene multiple times. We already know that Judas is one of the 12. But I think Luke wants, again, to draw our attention to the fact that this betrayal of Jesus was significant, was deep. After all, Judas had spent three years with Jesus. He'd heard Jesus preach. He had heard Jesus teach. He'd watched Jesus heal the sick and raise the dead. He'd seen all kinds of people transformed by the gospel that Jesus preached. But Judas's heart was hard. And no amount of external evidence or seeing the power of God could change that. And what a reminder that is, friends, even for us today, that it's not more evidence that we need, or it's not visual verification of God's power that actually changes us. No, if our heart is hard, no amount of evidence will ever be enough. If we, as we just sang, right, like it's the power of, of, of God to open our blind eyes. If you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. And this is a reminder of the hideousness of sin and the wickedness of an evil heart without the Lord's restraining grace. And so Judas, here with hard heart, walks up to Jesus to kiss him, which might seem weird in 2023 might seem strange, but kisses like this were common greeting in first century Jewish culture. 
But we know because Mark 14.44 tells us that this was a prearranged sign. Judas had already worked this out with the crowd. Hey, the guy I go up to and kiss, that's the guy you are to arrest. Which is why one commentator writes, this is a kiss of treachery, not of love. In fact, Judas's betrayal of Jesus is a fulfillment of Psalm 41 verse 9, where the psalmist writing even about Jesus to come says, even my close friend in whom I trust, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. It was just a matter of hours ago that Judas was seated at the Lord's Supper right next to Jesus, dipping his hand into the same oil or honey that as Jesus was, as Jesus was eating. John Flavel, 17th century British pastor, writes, Judas bid the soldiers to bind those blessed hands that not long before had washed the traitor's feet. Let me read that again. Judas bid the soldiers to bind those blessed hands that not long before had washed the traitor's feet. Well, the disciples see all of this They've already misunderstood what Jesus meant earlier about swords. They've failed to stay awake. They've slept when they should have prayed. And so we shouldn't be surprised then that they completely misread what's going on and they misread how they ought to respond, which is exactly what they do. Look at verse 49. When those who were around saw what would follow, they said, Lord, should we strike with the sword? And in our English translations, that could be read as sort of a question that they're wanting a legitimate answer to. In the Greek, it's phrased in such a way that it becomes obvious. They're not really asking the question. They're asking a question, but they've already reached a foregone conclusion. This is more like, we're going to strike with the swords. <laughs> One of them did. Verse, 40, or verse, verse 50 struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. <clears throat> We know from John chapter 18, verse 10, that this disciple who was brandishing the sword was Peter. He probably had a short sword or dagger like most people carried in that day. It's possible he was trying to kill Malchus. John tells us the name of the servant of the high priest was Malchus. And Malchus maybe moved perhaps at the last minute and Peter cut off his ear. This defense is ridiculous. Not because Peter seems to be a poor swordsman or because the disciples were outnumbered by highly trained soldiers. This is ridiculous because it's not the response Jesus wants of them. And we know this by what Jesus does next in verse 51. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Jesus puts an end to the violence and Jesus heals his enemy. We're going to get to that healing in just a little bit later. But then Jesus turns to the crowd, this mob who have come out to arrest him, and listen to what he tells them. Verse 52, he said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? While I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. It seems that we are to see that even the physical darkness here is symbolic of the dark action and dark intentions 
of this crowd. I mean, day after day, Jesus has taught in public, and no one's tried to publicly arrest him. And yet now, under the cover of darkness, these individuals, bent on sin, now go to work. Commentator Tom Schreiner writes, No motion to arrest Jesus was made in the light of day. And now that darkness has fallen, however, those who live in the realm of darkness make their move. They act in the dark because they are in the dark. It's their hour, their time, and their actions betray what is in their heart. And yet, and yet, even when the powers of darkness are full force against Jesus... Jesus points to the fact that the only reason they can do what they are about to do is because God has allowed them the opportunity. In other words, they've been allotted this time, and that's the only reason they can do what they're about to do. Jesus says, but this is your hour. This is your allowance. This is your allotment for the power of darkness to do its worst. In other words, God was still sovereign even in these moments of time. Even as God the Son is handing himself over to his enemies for our salvation, God is in complete control. J.C. Ryle wrote, The time during which evil is permitted to triumph is fixed, and limited by God. The sovereignty of God over everything done upon the earth is absolute and complete. The hands of the wicked are bound until he allows them to work. They can do nothing without his permission, but that's not all. The hands of the wicked cannot stir one moment before God allows them to begin and cannot stir one moment after God commands them to stop. Like the very worst of Satan's instruments are working in chains. Our Lord's enemies could not take and slay him until the appointed hour of his weakness arrived. Nor yet could they prevent his rising again when the hour came in which he was declared the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. When he was led forth to Calvary, it was their hour. When he rose victorious from the grave was his. So we see the faithless betrayal of the crowd of Judas in particular. But secondly, we see in this text faithless denial. The scene now shifts from a cold, dark garden to the warm glow of a fire in the courtyard as Peter draws close to the fire to warm himself among the crowd as Jesus has been taken into custody and questioned. This Peter, who was the same person we saw before when he was so confident that he would be ready for temptation, the same person who said he would be ready even to die with Jesus, the spotlight now shifts to him. Look at verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, Jesus, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then the servant girl 
seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. He denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Faithless denial. Peter, this disciple who was so confident, failed. He gave in to temptation, the temptation to blend in, the temptation to fit in. He couldn't handle the disapproving looks of those he didn't even know. He was embarrassed to be identified as one of Jesus' followers so that he denied that he knew Jesus. He denied being a follower. And he preferred the impersonal approval of strangers the potential of enduring sneers or mocking or maybe even suffering for identifying with Jesus. One author writes, unlike Peter, we should never underestimate our capacity for disloyalty. True, Peter is somewhat courageous, isn't he? He's tried to physically protect Jesus. He even follows Jesus with the crowd. Maybe he's curious what will happen next. Maybe he wants to prove Jesus wrong to show that his faith wouldn't fail. Yet tragically, his courage does fail when it comes to his own safety, maybe his own reputation. We see that he's not ready to face temptation or the hour of darkness. I think there's a lesson here in this for all of us, isn't there? For one thing, Peter's denial is a reminder that it is often easier to fight for Christ than to endure hardships for him. Again, Ryle wrote, to suffer patiently for Christ is far more difficult than to work actively. To sit still and endure calmly is far more hard than to stir about and take part in battle. Crusaders will always be found more numerous than martyrs. Peter was not alone in this. Remember, all of Jesus' disciples had failed. They'd all fled. And their failures aren't narrated like Peter's. Peter wasn't the only one. And it's a reminder, isn't it, just how frail we are. Just how vulnerable we can be to temptation. It's a reminder, isn't it, just how humble we ought to be before both God And we recognize we need every single moment and also humble with each other because we're also very much alike in this way. So when someone's sharing their own temptations or failures, it's good to remember our own weaknesses as we seek to encourage one another to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. When I fear my faith will fail, right? Christ will hold me fast to encourage one another to remember that even as we recall our own failings, shortcomings, and wanderings. I wonder what that hour was like between Peter's second 
betrayal, denial, and his third. Well, Luke is the only one that tells us that Jesus was in the courtyard. He's likely listening to Peter. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Listening to one of his closest friends deny any sort of relationship. Verse 61 tells us that right after Peter's denial for a third time, Denying that he knew Jesus, verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how the Lord had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter remembered. Through the help of the Lord, Peter remembered. Peter had forgotten before that. Not only had he forgotten that Jesus had said that all of this would happen, but Peter had forgotten that amid the temptations to fit in, there was a bigger reality. God the Son had called to him, even from the shore of the Sea of Galilee those three years ago. And that same God had changed Peter's life. He was a changed person. Peter knew better, but he had forgotten. And how easy it is for us who know better to forget. To forget that eternity is long and our lives here are short. To forget that the true reality overarching all of our conversations and all of our temptations and all of our desires to fit in is all about a king who is reigning and about a God who's provided salvation for all who believe and about our new identity as adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God such that even when we fail, even when we fall short of the glory of God, even when we sin, There is grace and mercy and forgiveness. But Peter needed the Lord to remind him of that. He didn't remember it before the first denial. He didn't remember it after the first denial. He didn't remember it after the second denial, even in the span of that hour. I think this look from Jesus wasn't a look of reproach and condemnation. I think it was a look of reminder and hope. He looks right into Peter's soul. And through that, Peter recalls to mind, oh, the Lord has told me that this would happen. But that's not all he's told me. The Lord had told him that when he turns back, he would strengthen His brothers, he was told, verse 32 of chapter 22, that Jesus had prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. And it didn't. Even though Peter denied Jesus, his faith did not ultimately fail. He did ultimately turn back. Do you know how we know? We know because he turned back. We know because he was repentant. He goes out and he he weeps bitterly. His turning back, in other words, began with tears. It began with the realization of his sin. Repentance always begins like that. And Peter's life would forever be different. If you've read his his later letters, 1 and 2 Peter, you see that gone is the kind of prideful, uh, knee-jerk reacting Peter who is so confident that he would never betray the Lord. And in its place is is a humble Peter, reminded of his needs. 
I think if Peter were with us, he would lead us to sing, I need thee every hour, right? Oh, I need thee. Oh, I need thee every hour I need thee. And Peter was reminded that failure can happen even when we least expect it and that the strength to stand and endure only comes from the Lord. And in that way, Peter's turning back not only strengthened his brothers around him, but it strengthens even us today. As we are reminded of Peter's failure and his repentance and his turning, and later, as we'll see, his reinstatement by the Lord. So we should be grateful that in the kind providence of the Lord, Peter makes this known. Remember, Peter is the only disciple here. The only reason we know this is because he chose to tell Mark or chose to tell Luke in humility, humble Peter, hey, here were my failures. And yet the Lord held me fast. Even when my faith for a, for a moment seemed to waver, seemed to fail. So we should sing often to ourselves, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Well, we've seen faithless betrayal and faithless denial. Third, notice faithless blasphemy. Verse 63, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? They said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now, Jesus had already predicted that he would be mocked and beaten. He did that in chapter 9, in chapter 17, in chapter 18. In fact, in the next few hours, Jesus himself would be accused of blasphemy, which means sacrilegious talk, taking lightly the, the deep, weighty things of God. But here, Jesus is not only exposed to blasphemy, here he is the object of blasphemy. They're blaspheming God the Son in the flesh. Now we won't spend too much time here because some of this is going to run into where we go in the, in the weeks to come, except to note how much the taunts of the guards sound like the temptations of Satan earlier in Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 4. Satan comes to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God. And that's essentially what these taunts were. Verse 64, they blindfolded him, kept asking him, prophesy, right? If you are a prophet, if you are divine as you claim to be, then you could tell us who just struck you. Well, let's turn from all of the faithlessness of Judas and the religious leaders and Peter and the soldiers, and let's spend the rest of our time looking at the one who is the true center of this narrative, and that's Jesus. There are at least three ways. There's lots of ways Jesus demonstrates faithfulness here, but I want to point out just three ways that Jesus demonstrates faithfulness. First, notice his faithful obedience. Jesus willingly turns himself over to those bent on destroying him. Jesus was not the victim of a hostile crowd. He wasn't forced against his will into custody. Jesus willingly went to the garden knowing what would happen and he obediently stood there as his captors came to get him. 
Matthew 26 reminds us from Jesus' own words in the garden that he could have easily called 12 legions of angels at a moment and they would have been there in an instant to set him free and to not only wipe out this pitiful band of soldiers but to completely annihilate the Roman Empire in a moment. But that wasn't the Father's plan. And Jesus was obedient to the Father. In fact, if Paul would write later in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus would become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The second thing to notice about Jesus' faithfulness here is just notice his faithful authority. Even as the crowd take Jesus as their prisoner, it's not the soldiers who are in control. Even here, Jesus is in complete control. It's Jesus, not the force of the crowd, that stops Peter and the other disciples from violence with a sword. In fact, Jesus even addresses the fact that he is with them and was with them every day, and they could do nothing at that time, and the only reason they're able to take him now is because it's the hour ordained by God for them to take him, for darkness to do its worst. Again, Flavel writes, God was not only the permitter, but the wise and holy director and orderer of it. By the wisdom of God's providence, he overruled or ruled over this entire time to the good and advantage of the church so that Jesus would go to the cross according to the plan of God. That he would despise the shame, that he would be nailed to it and suffer and die for the sin of the world, that he might rise from the dead three days later, defeating sin and death, so that all who trust in him by faith might be saved, so that all who turn to him by faith as our only hope of salvation, our only hope of being made right with God might be forgiven and justified and cleansed and transformed and adopted and sanctified and one day glorified. We also see the authority of Jesus Christ on display here as he does the unthinkable. He heals the ear of one of the very men who have come to illegally arrest him. Verse 50, again, one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear, but Jesus said, no more of this, and he touched his ear and healed him. And this is Jesus' last healing miracle. Just as an aside, this is a reminder that contrary to so-called faith healers today, faith isn't necessary for healing. Servant of the high priest, no faith that Jesus is the son of God and he's healed. If God wants to heal somebody, he can heal them whether they have faith or not because he's God. But think about how remarkable this is. Jesus has been in the garden under unimaginable strain and stress and this crowd has gathered, this angry mob, to arrest him. And the servant of the high priest is clearly not on Jesus' side and yet our Lord, even amid the passions of the moment and all the voices raging and the anger and the feelings, he, com he completely heals this man.
As one commentator writes, he cares for the needs of others even when his darkest hour is at hand. Like even in this desperate hour, Jesus remains a healing Savior. We have to wonder, don't we? Have you, have you wondered before? Like, wonder what happened to Malchus, this guy who had his ear healed. Like, I wondered in those moments if the crowd kind of, like, I picture, we don't know what happened. Like, I picture him like, he's healed. He's like, you know, I can't snap. But like, he's snapping. Like, he can hear out of his right ear, right? Like, and, and the crowds just kind of move on with Jesus in their blind anger and rage and sin. And, and he's just kind of like left there amazed. We don't know what happened for sure to Malchus. Maybe the fact that we know his name is owing to the fact that years later when John would write his gospel, and it's John who tells us his name, maybe Malchus was a part of the church. Can you imagine the story? Right? Like we want Malchus to be our sound guy because his hearing is perfect, right? He was touched by Jesus. <laughs> We don't know what happened to him for sure. But you would think this would have caused the whole crowd to stop and evaluate their life at that very moment. Like, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did y'all see what just happened? Okay, time out. Like, we need to huddle up because maybe we need a change of direction, a new strategy. Let's, let's do an audible here and change our plan. Like, maybe he is actually God as he said. This is such a tragic reminder, isn't it, that sin blinds us. Sin makes us do irrational things. And yet, Jesus is not limited by their sin. He continues according to plan in complete authority. Finally, notice Jesus' faithful humility. Jesus does not retaliate. He does not fight back. He does not immediately destroy these men holding Jesus in custody, even as they abuse him. Instead, he humbly endures it. And in so doing, our Savior fulfills the prophecy that the Lord had given through the prophet Isaiah. It was hundreds of years before. When looking ahead to the work, ultimately, of Jesus Christ, God, through Isaiah, speaking of Christ, would say, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Therefore, 
God says, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession with the transgressors. This, friends, is the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning, you're not trusting in Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. Let me plead with you and urge you. Even today, as we pray that God would open your eyes to see God's great glory as the creator, as a sustainer of all things. He would open your eyes to see your sin your unbelief, your need of forgiveness, that you would see that in Jesus Christ, God has provided and accomplished salvation for all who believe, that you would turn by faith and trust in him, even yet this morning. You see, our obedient, humble Savior with authority and love went to the cross to accomplish salvation so that all who turn to him for forgiveness of sin, might have new life. Even when we fail, even when we fall, there is grace. By grace, we are saved. It is of the grace of God. And we're gonna sing of that grace. So would you stand with me? I'm gonna pray. We're gonna reflect on the amazing grace of our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace which is greater than our sin, your grace which is deeper than our denials. Father, I pray that we would learn, even through the faithlessness of so many in our text and even from our own faithlessness at times, that we need you every hour, every hour we need you. When we fear our faith will fail, you hold us fast. God, would you, would you continue to remind us, continue to humble us, continue to cause us to trust more and more in you and rely more and more on you. <clears throat> Father, thank you for the work of your son, Jesus, who was faithful to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, you have exalted him, highly exalted him, and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to your glory. Would you imprint that glorious truth on our hearts even now as we sing? In Jesus' matchless name we pray, amen.